got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 185 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. This is your host, Tiffany Clark, and I've got a great episode for you today. And actually, this Wednesday marks the 126th anniversary of this event. But today, right now, this event is happening again in a city over on the east coast of the United States. Today's famous headline comes from the April 19, 1897 edition of the Boston Globe. Although the headline doesn't actually accompany an article, but rather a hand-drawn map. It says, B-A-A Road Race. Then, at the bottom of the map, it says, Route of Today's Marathon, 25-Mile Road Race. Friends, this is the story of the first-ever marathon run in the United States. The story of the first Boston Marathon. If you're an athlete and follow things like that, and if you're listening to this podcast the day it's released, You might be listening at the same time this year's marathon is being run in Massachusetts. Back in the late 1800s, Boston was proud of the fact that they produced a number of good athletes, and they encouraged athletic feats from their residents by building athletic complexes and promoting new and exciting events, like the Boston Marathon. The BAA, or Boston Athletic Association, that still exists today, by the way, was approached by the U.S. Olympic team manager, a man named John Graham, with a proposal. The year before, at the first modern Olympics held in Athens, Greece, the marathon was introduced for the first time anywhere in the world. John Graham thought it was a great event, and he suggested Boston host their own marathon. The BAA decided it sounded fun, and they agreed to help host. Many different routes were suggested for the race, and a lot of thought and consideration went into it. Finally, they decided to have runners start at Metcalf's Mill in nearby Ashland, and then end at the Irvington Oval Track in Boston. The route would cover 24.5 miles. Now, you might be saying to yourself that a marathon is 26.1 miles, and surely they got it wrong. But... In reality, the distance changed ever so slightly from venue to venue in those early years. Pretty much every Olympics had a slightly different number. For example, when the marathon was held in London for the 1908 Olympics, King Edward VII and Queen Alexandria wanted to see the runners start the race. So they requested that the race start at Windsor Castle and then proceed through town to the Olympic Stadium. That was exactly 26 miles. But the king and queen then wanted the runners to make an extra loop around the track so that the race would end in front of their box seats. That extra loop added 385 yards, making it roughly 26.1 miles. Eventually, that was the number that would stick for all marathons, including the Boston Marathon. April 19, 1897, the day the Boston Marathon was first held, was significant for another reason. It was also known as Patriots Day. Not a lot of places celebrate that day, but Massachusetts does, or at least they did, 
and it's a day to celebrate the first day of the Revolutionary War. So, before I move on, here are a few fun facts about the marathons over the years. Roberta Gibb was the first woman to ever run in the Boston Marathon, and that wasn't until 1966. However, she wasn't considered an official runner, because women weren't allowed to run. Instead, for three different marathons, 66, 67, and 68, Roberta hid in the bushes near the starting line and then began running when the men started their race. The first woman to run with an official race number was in 1967, and that was Catherine Switzer. I'm sure you've seen the famous pictures of her running. When she registered, she registered with her initials so that nobody would know she was female, and she was given a race bib. The race began, and Catherine started to run. After a few miles, a press bus full of reporters caught up to her and started yelling at her, asking her what she was trying to prove. Then the BAA officials saw her, and they were angry, to put it lightly. The famous pictures show an enraged man physically chasing after her and trying to remove her from the race. Luckily, Catherine's boyfriend, a former All-American football player, and her coach were racing alongside her. The boyfriend threw his shoulder into the race official and sent him flying. Her coach yelled for her to run, and they took off, passing crowds, ditching the press bus. Catherine was so angry that she turned to her coach and said, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and knees if I have to, because if I don't finish this race, nobody's going to believe women can do it, and they're not going to believe women deserve to be here. I have to finish this race. And she did. And that brings me to my next fact. Just five years later, in 1972, women were officially allowed to run in the Boston Marathon. Eight women competed that year, and all eight finished. Every year since then, more and more have entered. In 1975, the race decided to allow a wheelchair division in the marathon. Bob Hall was the first to participate, and he finished the race in two hours and 58 minutes just two minutes under the time required to receive an official finisher's certificate. The second year the race was run, clear back in 1898, a man from Nova Scotia won the race, making him the first foreigner to win it. Since then, many more foreigners have run and won, making it a truly international competition. 24 different countries can claim that they have winners of the Boston Marathon from their country. In 1986, the race winners in both the men's and women's divisions were given cash prizes for the first time, and they received new cars. Many records have been made and passed over the years, and I'm sure it will continue to be that way. But I can't end this story without mentioning that today is the 10th anniversary of tragedy at the Boston Marathon. On April 15, 2013, Two terrorists set off bombs near the finish line, killing three people and injuring hundreds of others. I'll never forget that moment because I was shopping for new furniture at the time, and a man in the store was glued to the television, watching coverage of the event. His daughter was at the race, and he couldn't get a hold of her. He just kept dialing over and over and over. I never did find out if she was one of those that was injured or not. Anyway, before I close, there is one more question to answer. 
who won the first ever Boston Marathon back on April 19, 1897. Well, out of just 15 runners that first year, John J. McDermott from New York came out victorious with a time of 2 hours, 55 minutes, and 10 seconds. Now, let's run to open some more newspapers and find out what else was being reported on such a historic day. For my first additional history story of the day, I could tell you about the story that was on the front page of every newspaper, because all of them told of a war beginning between Turkey and Greece. But I don't like to tell war stories, so instead, I've got a murder story for you. And I bet you're not even a little bit surprised by that. Murders are what sold newspapers. Murders still sell newspapers, although it is kind of a dying art form. Anyway, I'm taking this headline from the Kennebec Journal out of Augusta, Maine. It simply says, A Manhunt. There were a lot of articles printed in the newspapers about this particular murder, but then I discovered that the website Murder by Gaslight had already gathered all of those articles and condensed them. So a lot of what I'm telling you is just coming straight from that source. The manhunt referenced in the headline was referring to the hunt for Joseph E. Kelly. He was accused of committing murder a couple of days earlier on April 16th. Joseph Kelly was 24 years old, and he rented a room in Summersworth, New Hampshire. It was a boarding house. Joseph always seemed to be in need of money and just never had enough of it. He'd grown up in Massachusetts and was one of 10 kids in his family. Despite the high number, all of the kids in the family were said to be smart kids. Except Joseph's parents told the police that their son had been a good kid all the way until he was 10, and then he'd suddenly turned wild. He started stealing things, like bicycles, and when he was caught breaking and entering, he had to spend time in a reform school. Still, everyone in Joseph's hometown was shocked to find out that he was accused of a horrific murder. You see, across the street from the boarding house where Joseph lived was the Great Falls National Bank. I can only imagine that seeing people go in and out of there all day with money got pretty tiresome for Joseph. It also didn't help that Joseph could see the bank teller counting the money every day. Having something that enticing so close was just too hard for him. And eventually, he gave in to his impulse. He decided to rob the Great Falls National Bank. Some criminals don't try to cover their tracks at all, but Joseph did put a good effort in and wore a fake mustache and beard when he went into the bank. After all, the bank teller knew who he was and would be able to tell authorities exactly who robbed the bank. But the day he went in, there was already another customer in the bank, a woman. The sight of someone else in the building worried him, and he decided to abort his mission. Since the bank teller hadn't recognized him with the disguise, he decided to wear it again, and he went back the very next day. That time, the teller, Joseph Stickney, was all alone. Joseph Kelly pretended that he needed stamps, something that the teller would have to go to the back of the bank to get, and then Joseph followed the elderly teller to the back and shut the glass door behind them. 
The sudden movement and realization of what was about to happen scared Stickney, and he began to yell. He called for the police or anyone who would come help. Stickney's reaction shocked Joseph, and instead of aborting the mission again, he struck him over the head a couple of times with some sort of weapon, and when Stickney had fallen to the ground, Joseph slit his throat with a razor. It was a very sudden, violent murder. Well, Joseph knew that the stakes had just been raised, and if he was going to get out of the bank without anyone seeing him, he had to work quickly. He began dumping money into an empty pillowcase that he'd brought with him, and he had ended up with just over $4,000. Then he turned to leave, ready to make his getaway. Except there was a problem. He didn't know that the glass door automatically locked when he'd pulled it closed. He was trapped in the back of the bank with the dead teller. Once again, hoping for some luck, Joseph decided to smash the glass in the door so he could climb out. There still wasn't anyone in the lobby, and he managed to escape the bank without anyone seeing him. Now, I don't know if Joseph immediately went home, or if he took time to circle around and ditch his disguise, but he did go back to his boarding house across the street not too long after the robbery. It took two hours before someone went into the bank and discovered what had happened to poor Mr. Stickney. Joseph must have had a reputation around town, because it didn't take very long for the police to come knocking at his door. They immediately suspected him, and a couple of other guys. When Joseph didn't answer, the police talked to his landlord, and was told that Joseph had indeed been there recently, because he'd found the landlord to pay $20 for his rent. In reality, after paying the rent, surely with bank money, Joseph hurried to his room, packed a few things, including the money he'd just stolen, and then hurried down to the train station. By the time the police figured all of this out hours later, Joseph was long gone. The manhunt was on. The police hunted Joseph for days. They searched all possible routes he might have taken once he got on the train, and they tried to think of where he might have connections that he could be going. A lot of them assumed he was going to make his way down to Massachusetts, since that was familiar territory for him. But ultimately, they decided he was heading across the Canadian border to Quebec. This is where things get even more surprising. When the police finally tracked him down in Canada, they discovered that he had gone to a hotel and then given $10 to the owner, $10 in gold, to buy a woman's dress. Joseph told the man that it was a gift for his wife, who lived in Montreal. Except the next thing the hotel owner knew, Joseph was wearing the dress and walking out of the hotel. Montreal was where the police finally caught up with Joseph. When they found him and arrested him at a brothel, he was with two women who worked there, and he was still wearing the dress. The Montreal police agreed to extradite him, probably happy to get rid of him, and Joseph was sent back to New Hampshire to stand trial. The trial started in November of 1897, and right from the start, it was a crazy trial. On the very first day, the jury was taken on a field trip to see where Joseph had lived at the time of the murder and to see the site where Mr. Stickney was killed. Those who attended the trial said that Joseph didn't seem worried at all, and he even smiled throughout the trial. 
A lot of witnesses were called to the stand, including people who saw a mustached man carrying a pillowcase around the day of the murder, and railroad employees who saw him during his escape. They even brought the man down from Canada who sold Joseph the infamous dress. This is where things in the trial took a shocking turn. A few days in, Joseph stood up at the beginning of the day and announced that he was ready to change his plea. He wanted to plead guilty for Joseph Stickney's murder. But he had one condition. If he pled guilty and was sentenced to death, he wanted his hanging to take place on January 16th of the next year, just a couple of months away. When questioned why the date was so important, Joseph told the judge that he'd made a contract with the devil and it was going to expire on January 15th. As strange as the request was, the judge agreed to let Joseph change his plea and the jury was sent home. Well, originally, when Joseph's family and friends hoped he would be found innocent, or if found guilty, he'd get a lenient sentence, they'd talked about how smart he was and how bright he was. As soon as the contract with the devil came up and the possibility that Joseph might be found guilty by reason of insanity, the tone changed. Suddenly, they all claimed that he'd been known in his hometown as Foolish Joe, and that as a kid, he'd had a rusty nail go through his skull making him fall unconscious for three days. He's never been the same since. Multiple medical experts were called in and tested Joseph to see just how normal he was. All of them agreed that there was something off about him and that his mental age was more that of an eight or nine-year-old boy than an adult man. Joseph loved to write poetry, and suddenly his poems were being used in court to show how crazy he was. It hurt his feelings because he was serious about his poetry, and he didn't like the turn that things were taking. When the judge finally made a decision, he found Joseph E. Kelly guilty of second-degree murder by reason of insanity and sentenced him to 30 years in a state prison. Joseph seemed a bit sad that he wouldn't be hung, but after 22 years or so, he was let out of prison and moved to New York where it seemed that he led a pretty quiet life. For today's second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Daily Pantograph out of Bloomington, Illinois. The headline says, General Grant's Body Removed. There's a question I'm sure you've all heard before, and it is, who is buried in Grant's tomb? The question is, of course, referring to Ulysses S. Grant, a.k.a. General Grant, a.k.a. President Grant. It's a pretty common question or saying, but why? What's the mystery surrounding Grant's burial in his tomb? The answer to that is easy. There isn't any mystery. Many years ago, as in at least a 100 years ago, some comedian thought it was funny to ask who was buried in General Grant's tomb, knowing that the obvious answer to the question was in the question itself. Then the question became more famous when Groucho Marx, hosting the quiz show You Bet Your Life, started using the question as a gimme of sorts. When contestants weren't doing well, 
he'd ask that question so they could win a prize. Others will argue that the answer to the question isn't that Grant is buried there, because in reality, nobody is buried in his tomb. His remains are actually above ground and weren't buried in the tomb. But let me back up a bit. We all know that General Grant was the general who led the Union to victory during the Civil War. He was a super popular figure, and when it came time for the first election after the war ended, General Grant became president, easily winning the election. People continued to like him and respect him and honor him. So when he passed away from throat cancer in 1885, many of the nation's citizens mourned his loss. Before President Grant passed away, he gave a lot of thought as to where he would like to be buried when his time came. His first choice spot was to be buried at his beloved West Point. But when he realized that women weren't allowed to be buried there, meaning his wife wouldn't be able to be buried with him, he quickly changed his mind. So he went to his wife, Julia, and asked her to pick a place. Julia agreed and chose for her husband to be buried in New York City. They'd been living there for a while, and they enjoyed it. Now, the Grants didn't have a lot of money. It wasn't like nowadays where former presidents seemed to have endless money at their disposal. After his presidency ended, the couple went on a goodwill mission in different parts of the world, making even more people like him. And after some bad business deals, they came back with hardly any money to their names, and that included hardly any money for a burial. He decided to write his autobiography to earn some more cash, and he finished writing it just days before he died. That was okay, though, because donations started pouring in. When President Grant passed away on July 23, 1885, it was the middle of summer. It was very hot, and people were worried about the condition the body might be in for the funeral if they didn't act fast. So his body was immediately embalmed and then placed in a glass coffin until they could hold his funeral. Actually, until they could hold two funerals. The first funeral was just for his family and his closest friends, a private affair. The public funeral, a couple of weeks after his death, on August 8th, was huge. People flocked to the scene, all wanting to see the procession go by. They estimated that one and a half million people showed up for the funeral. But it wasn't just average, everyday citizens. Presidents, Supreme Court justices, and other Civil War generals all came. Men in the Union, men from the former Confederate states, and African-American regiments marched along to honor him. There were so many people involved that it took somewhere between five and seven miles for the procession to pass all of the people lined up in the streets. President Grant was buried in a temporary tomb until something better and more fitting could be built. It was just hours after his funeral that the mayor of New York City approached his widow and offered them a spot in Riverside Park. That same mayor started a fund to raise money for a monument at the grave's location. Donations to the fund poured in from all over the country, and even from donors around the globe. Pretty soon, $600,000 had been collected. That was a lot of money back in the 1800s. But even though the funds were there, 
it would still take 12 years for the tomb to be built. The tomb is made of granite with a marble dome, and inside are murals that depict some of General Grant's war victories. On the front, the words, let us have peace, are carved. That was his campaign slogan. It took 12 years, like I said, from the time of Grant's death for the memorial to be finished. And then, as the headline of this additional history story suggests, it was time for the body to be moved to its final resting place. The family didn't want the big fanfare they had the first time the body was interred, so there was no public announcement about it. Instead, a few representatives of the family were present to witness Grant's original casket being lifted up and put in a new red-tinted sarcophagus. Then, the lid was cemented down. It was said that the original coffin and the wreaths that were buried with it were in excellent condition, and everything went well. But, word got out about what was happening, and before the body could be taken to the new memorial, a crowd started to gather to watch the spectacle. But, only around 5,000 people showed up before the task was finished. Then, a few days later, on April 27th, what would have been Grant's 75th birthday, the National Monument was dedicated in Riverside Park. That time, the public was notified, and they once again came out in droves, despite the length of time that had passed since Grant had been alive. At least a million people showed up for the tomb's dedication. There was a parade for the event, and it was led by the newly inaugurated President William McKinley. Well, as often happens, as the years passed, the tomb lost some of its shine and its appeal as the elements and visitors began to wear on it. It was hard to maintain its original beauty. In the 1930s, upkeep for the tomb was assigned to the New Deal's Work Project Association. The group replaced some of the stained glass in the tomb and added some statues from a city hall that was being torn down, and they also added an office at the memorial. They were good changes, and things were looking good. But then, in 1958, the site was officially renamed the General Grant National Memorial, and the National Park Service took over the maintenance of it. Except they didn't really maintain it, and the tomb began to fall into disrepair. Sidewalks and pathways cracked. The murals were covered in graffiti. People wrote on the walls, and as the years passed, it became a popular place for skateboarders to skate, using the stairs like a ramp. And you can imagine how much damage that did. Then along came a man named Frank Scaturo. Frank was a student at Columbia University, and it was disturbing to him that a monument to a former president and war hero could be disrespected in such a way. He worked as a part-time tour guide at the site and decided to start submitting complaints to the National Park Service about it but nothing happened. Frank didn't give up, though, and he got many other people involved, including some of President Grant's descendants. In 1994, those descendants decided to sue, and they announced that unless the federal government did something about the problems at the tomb, they were going to change the answer to their question of who is buried in Grant's tomb. They would have their great-great-grandfather and grandmother move to a different location and nobody would be buried in the big tomb. And the threats worked. In 
the budget to maintain the site was tripled and $1.8 million was spent to restore the tomb. The restoration was finished just in time for the tomb's 100th anniversary in 1997. The memorial is open to visitors year-round if you want to visit it for yourself. For my third and final additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Buffalo Courier out of Buffalo, New York. It's a rather sad story, and one where a family was left with a lot of unanswered questions. The headline says, Is the suicide Ernest Markham? Ernest F. Markham had been in charge of the advertising department at the Boston Journal newspaper for a couple of years. He seemed to like his job. His co-workers liked him, and he was a nice guy. Ernest was married, and he had one child. One day, Ernest's wife noticed that he seemed a bit off. There wasn't anything she could really put her finger on, and she figured he was just tired and maybe a little overworked. Some of his co-workers noticed his behavior too. Again, nothing specific, just not quite right. That night, Ernest's wife waited for him to get home from work so they could eat dinner and spend time together. But he didn't come home. I don't know if it was like him to be late ever, but it must not have been normal because it didn't take very long for poor Mrs. Markham to really start to worry. Where was her husband? When he still didn't come back at all the next day, a Saturday, Mrs. Markham was frantic to find her husband. People at work said that before he left, the last time they saw him, he'd been talking about taking a work trip to Philadelphia. But nothing had been set in stone, and it didn't seem like it was something he was immediately planning, especially not without telling his wife. Then Mrs. Markham saw something in a different newspaper that absolutely terrified her. The article said that shortly after noon, a man believed to be from Boston rented a hack with a driver clear up in Niagara Falls. The driver of the hack said that the man looked to be about 25 years old. He was about 5 feet 7 inches, and he was well-dressed in black clothing. The man was clean-shaven and had a rounded face. He requested that the driver take him around town, showing him all the best points of interest. While they were driving around, the mystery man announced that he would like to go across to the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. So, they stopped at the ticket office, but the man didn't have enough change on him. The hack driver made up the difference, and the man said he'd pay him back when they got back to his hotel. Except, as the hack was driving across the suspension bridge near the falls, the man suddenly jumped out of the hack, yelled, Goodbye, boss! and then jumped over the railing into the water. He gave no warning of what he was about to do, and the driver was shocked. He said he saw the man hit the water, but never saw him resurface. He immediately reported it, and a search began, but the man's body couldn't be found. The only thing the man left behind that could have been used as a clue to who he was was the hat he left on the seat of the hack before he jumped. It was made by Hall and Hancock out of Boston and was a size seven and three quarters. When Mrs. Markham read that part in the news and heard the description, she didn't want to lose hope that her husband would be found. 
but the description of the mystery jumper exactly matched her husband, and the hat he left behind was a match for the hats her husband always wore. Mrs. Markham spent 24 hours terrified, hoping and hoping that what her gut was telling her was wrong and that her husband would reappear alive somewhere. But those hopes were crushed when she received a letter in the mail that her husband had mailed before he jumped. The mystery man was indeed Ernest F. Markham. And nobody ever did figure out why a well-to-do businessman with a family he loved decided to end it all just when his life was getting started. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Emporia Gazette out of Emporia, Kansas. It's been a while since I've shared an ad for a crazy medicine with outlandish promises, so today I'm going to share one. This one is called the Elixir of Life, and it was pushed by a pharmacist by the name of W.R. Irwin. The Elixir of Life, our celery compound, comes about as near it as anything we know of. It will make the young well and strong, and it will make the old young and strong. It does this by strengthening the nerves, by making pure red blood. We don't know anything better for debilitated men and women. Sounds good to me. Sign me up. Friends, thanks for joining me on this race through the newspapers from April 19, 1897, the day the first Boston Marathon was held. I'm going to be back again next Monday, and I hope you'll join me then too. I'll be talking about another first. This time it'll be something you can all relate to, and maybe even some of you might remember. Talk to you later.